Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Slug with Falcon Screen, and we're joined by Chris Evans. Hello. And we have a special guest with us tonight, a 2SCR film critic and critic for the Friday Daily. Kevin Suarez is here with us. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on Film Fight Club. You're very welcome, Glenn. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So we have a big show. We are talking about In This Corner of the World, which screened at the Japanese Film Festival and has a general release to, from tomorrow. We are talking about, because we love film and we love being meta, we love films that are meta. So we're talking about films about filmmaking in the spirit of our film of the week, which is drumroll opening in cinemas tomorrow. There you can see it, or could have seen it from the past week at the Hayden Orpheum Kamorn, The Disaster Artist. Now, this, for those who haven't heard about this film, you will be hearing about it because this is a film about the worst film ever made, The Room, which was made in 2002 for a reported $6 million and reportedly grossed about 1800 So didn't exactly recoup its loss right away, but did make a huge profit in the years to come because people have come to see this at midnight screenings all over the world. And you can see it at the Hand Morphium once a month. I go once a year and it is very, very fun indeed. It's essentially this generation's Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's an, a raucous, drunken audience participation riot, as I understand it. It's a good show. To my, to my great pride and shame, I've seen it seven times, five of it in the Orpheum. And yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty good night. So, but this film isn't The Room. This film is The Disaster Artist. It is based on the memoir by Greg Sestero, who plays the supporting lead Mark in The Disaster Artist. And it's about the production of what many say is the worst film ever made. It is directed by and starring James Franco as the writer, director, producer, and star of The Room, the ubiquitous Tommy Wiseau. It also stars Dave Franco, James's brother, Seth Rogen, Alison Brie, and a number of others. Now, the first thing I have to say about this film is it is a film about the worst film ever made, which is trying to be the best film of the year. That's really trying to win Best Picture. And I think I might do it because, guys, I've got to tell you, I've got to give this film high marks. So do uh, I. Yeah, yes, I've been waiting for that. Mark, yeah. yeah, I've been waiting for that joke for a while now. It's yeah. If if you haven't seen the film, there are many terrible, terrible, terrible one-liners in the film. This is but one of them. It is really worth checking out. But off the room, what did we think of the Disaster Artist? I really liked it. Um, I think this film cap. See, what James Franco has done in his performance is capture exactly the person that you imagine when you look at Johnny, Tommy's character, in the room. As soon as he first appears in this film, you get the sense that he's nailed it completely. There's a a shot where Greg is chasing after Tommy as he's walking away from an acting theatre, and he just has this um, acting class. He just has this um, droopy eyelid, empty, sleepy look on his face, and I just thought, that's it. That's Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, it's a performance that is remarkable and that it could have been an SNL-type skit where he's trying to mimic him or mock him, but it wasn't that. It was confronting, and it was also... And it, took, it confronted a lot of the well, difficult parts of his character, but it was also very affectionate. This was clearly about someone who admired and was fascinated by this character. He, considering the guy makes 12 films a year or something like that, he really put in the effort to really be Tony Wiseau. This is a performance that could very well not just get a number of yeah, critics awards, but Oscar yeah, nominations too. He's gunning too. for the best actor Oscar with this. Which Something is a- Tommy Wiseau probably wished he could uh, gun for <laughs> yeah. as well, but one yeah. of the best things about his performance as well was also the fact that he could also master the comedy, but not in a way that did mock Tommy Wiseau. As you said, make it like an SNL sketch, but 
sort of revealed insecurities in him, trying revealing how he imagines himself as some kind of all American boy and how he he's like what like the like a paragon of American values when he not so much. As well as uh, the comedy also reveals into his psyche as well as his own unique and sometimes distorted worldview and views of Hollywood as well. And uh, it was quite fascinating to watch it. Yeah, they strike an interesting balance because I wouldn't say that there's no mockery of Tommy Wiseau here because that's certainly an aspect of this film. And there's a lot to laugh at about Tommy Wiseau. He is a man who is overwhelmed by self-deception. And, yeah, the the movie makes no qualms about that. He's a fascinating character. An interesting fact about the film, he insisted on not only appearing in it, but being in a scene with James Franco, which does appear, we'll keep it as a surprise, it is one of the highlights of the film. It's after the credits. But this is, yes, I missed the credits. Oh, you have, to, you have to go back and watch it. But this is a film where it is clearly a... What's interesting about this film, why you may not have heard about The Room, is that it is one of the biggest jokes internally within Hollywood. People in Hollywood, people who love film, love to see this film because it is a disaster, but it is still endearing because as much as the disaster artists feel about people who clearly love film, love filmmaking, so is this. And even more so once you've read the book and get the background. And James Franco, who found out about this from an article that was written about The Room, has just tried to spread this message to so many people. And I think he's done a pretty good job of it. Yeah, the movie was described, I think, several times as the Citizen Kane of bad movies, which most people do agree with because there is something so inherently watchable about The Room yeah. that, that James Franco wanted to capture. The Room is differentiated from most So Bad It's Good movies um, or junk that junk movie aficionados like to seek out because of a number of reasons. One is that it has really high production values for a film of such low-quality content. And this movie goes into the pretty fascinating story of how that came to be, how someone with with no talent was able to put together a production on the level of the room. And two, because Tommy Wiseau's personality is all over this thing and it's such an alien persona. Like, the room isn't just bad, it's confusing how anybody <laughs> could make the creative choices that went into this film. And this movie is to a large extent, about how Tommy Wiseau is an alien. You know, how he's alienated from all the people around him and his tragedy. But it doesn't sentimentalize him too much, in my opinion. It manages to convey that he has very monstrous qualities at the same time as celebrating his ambition and his achievement in getting this film made and laughing at (laughs) his eccentricities I think it, it was a pretty convincing portrait that rang true to me when, as you say, this could easily have come off as an SNL-type um, just parody of the room and or an in-joke fest. So I was was really happy with how this turned out, both in the screenplay and in Franco's performance. I was too. And there are a number of sequences in the original room which are, what, approximations of human behavior. It's not how people act. It's not how people talk. It's not how people yeah. interact. Yeah. And this goes into some of the, as Chris said, some of the really strange things about this production. This was about the first. Rousseau. Yeah. I mean, this was the first and perhaps the last film to be filmed simultaneously in digital and film, yeah. and he bought the equipment, which people don't generally do in Hollywood. You don't you, you hire it. 
and apparently he even got rid of the digital like footage that he recorded. He just went with the film, if I, or it could have been the other way around. Uh, I think he used a bit of both. There was also issues of lack of lighting. Um, one of the things when you go to a screening, you shout things out at the screen. There's things corresponding actions to almost every line. One is to shout focus at the various times of the film when the film is blatantly, blatantly out of focus, including the famous rooftop scene, which we'll play in a moment. Yeah, um, the one area where I think this film really faltered for me was the end credits where there's a side-by-side comparison showing how closely they've approximated the original scenes from the room. And to me, this rubbed me the wrong way because it just seemed almost like showing off. I think the fans of the room are going to appreciate how closely they've approximated those scenes. They'll notice those little details. But putting it at the end of the movie takes away from the feeling of of the culmination of this narrative and then puts the audience into a space of, like, sit back and look at how great we were for nailing it this much. You know, it's like we're feeling pretty good about the film and the filmmakers at this point. You know, no need to boast. Yeah, they should have added that scene as perhaps a deleted scenes or yeah. a, put it on YouTube bo- or something or bon- you know? bon- yeah exactly or bonus features bonus on the feature, DVDs yeah. Yeah. It, feels, it, feel, it takes you out of the feeling that the narrative gives you it takes I, you out of the movie I do feel that perhaps they were trying to deliberately go for that feeling especially at the beginning when they were doing those Q&A's with Adam Scott and all of these people that are popular in the Hollywood industry now talking about their experience in the room, trying to go for a very different perspective on filmmaking. Mm. But did that intro tie in well for the film for anyone? I don't think it really did. It didn't tie in well at all, but I'm going to, and I I think it jarred quite badly, but I'm going to disagree slightly on the end and I'm going to say why. I found, and I was really impressed with this, the film did not go overboard with really blatant references to the to the room. Mm. And at the same time, many people who go to see this film will not be familiar with the room. They'll have no idea that it is based on another film. So to go in and suddenly see, oh, wait a second, there's this early 2000s it film really that looks exactly just like it. bad. I We're not exaggerating. See, I should seek this out. You're what right. is this movie? I, I suppose it makes sense from that from that perspective. The one thing that really did get me about this film, though, I don't didn't mind it so much because I really love it, but it was actually the casting of Dave Franco, and I'll say why. Uh, firstly, he doesn't look nothing like Greg Sestro. That's not an issue for me in and of itself, but they try to make it look like Greg Sestro, and it's a little more distracting for me than it was necessarily conducive to being faithful to a recreation. The other thing I had was that they... They, they're brothers, and they do really well in the sense that Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero had a warm relationship, but it was also a very fractious relationship at times, and yeah. I think the, they didn't get those parts as well. The, I agree. I don't think they nailed that, um, that kind of icy... Yeah, there could have been a lot more psychological exploration of the, the strange dynamic between Tommy and Greg. As it is, I think the movie is going for a light comedy kind of feel, so they don't want to... dark kind of waters but um it i think uh the essential beats of it are pretty satisfying of the relationship the movie really hinges on this relationship between greg and tommy if we haven't made this clear yeah uh for me even though i do love the disaster artist i do feel my own personal opinion was at the the beginning bit where it goes from the you know, beginning to know each other in 1998 all the way up to uh, 2002 when they started uh, filming was a bit, a little bit unnecessary. It sort of fell on the show, don't tell, as in the the book itself that it's based on started some, like the narrative starts a few days before they start filming. Uh, Not To be honest, I enjoyed seeing Tommy before, before Johnny. I, I loved the James Dean stuff. 
I, I wouldn't cut it. I think that perhaps they should have used that as flashbacks. Maybe when they're, you know, arguing about something, it could be a flashback towards, you know, what how their relationship was like beforehand because it felt a bit too samey. A couple of other movies had done a similar idea where, you know, two friends, you know, f- meet each other in like college or university or something and then they decide hey let's go do something together i felt like that story had been played out a bit before i felt like it was heartfelt enough here and it it anchored the movie i think if it had just begun when they were starting the room i think the production of it i think to a general audience that doesn't love the awfulness of the room already might say why do we care kevin how do you find the book having read it recently how do you find the book compared to the movie um i've Admittedly, only re- read some part of it, but I did notice that they did sort of mix some things around. So some of the things that happened uh, shortly before filming, they would deliberately add into scenes separate of that of the um, movie. So then something that would have happened in the book earlier, like a line, I noticed that there were a couple of lines in like the first chapter alone that ended up being used in a different context. And I'm not so sure about that. I think that they probably could have um, used those lines in the original context within the book. But I don't know. It sort of goes between, you know, like, you know, movie adaptions. It's a a completely different argument how movies are adapted from books. Fair enough. And I think it is a film worth seeking out, as is a book worth seeking out. I read it some time ago. The Disaster Artist is screening at the Hayden Orpheum and will be in cinemas everywhere from tomorrow. We'll be back shortly talking about films about films and a wonderful film from the Japanese Film Festival, which you can see shortly in cinemas everywhere. For now, we leave you with one of, if not the greatest scene from The Room. Stay tuned. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hey, Johnny. What's up? I have a problem with Lisa. She said that I hit her. What? Well, did you? No, it's not true. Don't even ask. What's new with you? Well, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. I got a question for you. Yeah. You think girls like to cheat like guys do? What makes you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... I'm just thinking. I don't have to worry about that because Lisa is loyal to me. Yeah, man, you never know. It's bullshit. I did not. <laughs> and that was the famous, infamous scene from the room. Well, well, one of many. One of many. And one of many films about... What a story, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> we could be here forever doing Toy Whistle impersonations. And you can hear many more at the Hayden Orpheum monthly screenings. As you can see, The Disaster Artist, one of the many films about film, which we love very much. And we're here to talk. We love films. We love films that are meta. And there's nothing more meta than films about filmmaking. And I think I have a few favorites. I'm very keen to talk about them. But we all have ones or one or two that we have always been very, very keen on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's always these movies that uh, focus on this topic, but, you know, such as The Bowfingers and Ed Wood, similar to The Disaster Artist in Idea, uh, but one of my personal favourites, it's even more ridiculous than The Disaster Artist or Ed Wood, it's Tropic Thunder. Right. And it's one of the first movies that really got me into, you know, movies as you know, in general, because it was just so ridiculous, so over the top. But you know what? I feel like it was one of the realest movies about the movie making process that was released, you know, so far, because I know it's, it sort of plays everything up for comedy all of the actors have all of these overblown egos but and for example when as soon as that director says cut some of the actors then start running off to the nearest 
pile of cocaine to bury their heads in it or something. But uh, with all of these jokes, there's some sort of tinge of seriousness to them as well. Tom Cruise is fairly convincing as Harvey Weinstein in this film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's crazy. You're the second person to bring this film up with me today. And I've got to give credit to Robert Downey Jr. here. The second film where he's put on a pretty bad Australian accent. This one got slightly better. But this film is just so much fun. It has, as was alluded, Tom Cruise's best camera, one of his all-time best roles, and it's a film about filmmaking where anyone can watch it, whether you are a filmmaker or someone who's just, you know, whatever, yeah. and love it, and yeah. it's hilarious, and it still it holds up really well. Yeah, and the thing is, like, there are all these, like, nods and winks towards people who also love movies. For example, that, you know, uh, pyromaniac that Danny McBride plays when he accidentally blows up a part of a forest, that's actually tinged in reality as well, as much as we all laugh at it. That actually did happen with Apocalypse Now. And uh, and that got the movie makers uh, of Apocalypse Now into trouble as well because they accidentally did set off too many pyrotechnics in a very dense remote forest, which they weren't happy about. So, yeah, like there are many of these different uh, scenes that we all laugh at, but then there is some sort of reason why it happened, you know, why they decided to include it in the movie as well. Wow. My problem with um, a lot of films on filmmaking is that I think it's an easy pathway to self-indulgence. And I, I find a lot of this stuff seems to be um, not relatable. You know, celebrities griping about celebrity problems, making movies about my struggle. However, my favorite film about filmmaking is the one that epitomizes this trend, which is Eight and a Half, where Fellini's mastery is so great that even though it ticks all the boxes I've just listed... It's a beautifully put-together dreamscape. It is. It's an obsessive film about filmmaking. It's about dreams as much as anything else. And we're going to talk about a film that is about dreams in a moment. But this is a film where I saw Birdman a few years ago, and I'm sitting there watching this one best picture. It's a film about theatre, but it's also very much about filmmaking. And I'm watching this and thinking, how much does this mirror eight and a half? How many films, how many filmmakers, including Woody Allen, have been not only inspired, but have taken directly from films like this to create amazing new features? And I think it really started off with Eight and a half. We really yeah. have to bring it back to the master Fellini. Eight, eight, yeah, eight and a half is incredible. Um, Woody Allen, as Glenn just referenced, did a take on eight and a half called Stardust Memories, where you know Woody Allen is already super self indulgent, and um, what's the oh, yeah oh yes neurotic. How can we talk about Woody Allen without using that word? Um, <laughs> but to do Woody Allen making a take on Fellini's possibly most self-obsessed and neurotic film just tipped the scales over too much. I found this movie just absolutely insufferable. Like it just a self-indulgence and um that was so palpable that I felt like the movie wasn't letting me in to enjoy it on any level. Yeah, I haven't enjoyed too many of his latest. The Wonder Wheel is in cinemas shortly, sure, too. Yeah, and We're all looking forward to that. Yeah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sarcasm. I think um, uh, I think too many people have been telling him it's, he's great without actually giving him you know actual criticism. And yeah, Wonder Wheel wasn't that awesome either. Oh, too bad. Yeah. Um, I, I like films on filmmaking that in general. Apart from Eight and a Half, I like the ones that tend to take the, use this concept to take us in a more fantastical direction. Yes. Um, two of my classic, very special films to my heart 
are about filming. They came out at the same time, Sunset Boulevard and Singing in the Rain. And I think these two films epitomize the very different directions you can go in. The one, The Singing in the Rain, in the the Hail Caesar mold, where it's very much about the fun, the history. Look at how films were made back in the day. Romanticization of filmmaking. Versus Sunset Boulevard, where it's very much the dark history. Look what happened in the time of Eric von Stroheim and all these great actors. And what was actually going on when we don't know too much about film history and how realistic a depiction is this of early early Hollywood? The darkness behind the glitz and glamour of fame. Sunset Boulevard is a... Big influence on Film Fight Club favorite David Lynch. Uh, <laughs> it would not be Film Fight Club, Kevin. It would not be Film Fight Club without referencing either David Lynch or Terence Malick. So yes, we have a David Lynch reference yep, for the week. Thank yep. you, Chris. Yes, um, Malick. So oh no, sorry. But Lynch. It, remember, it's, <laughs> it's pretty interesting how these two films uh, comparatively ended up uh, permeating the pop culture, right? Sunset uh, Boulevard, and yeah, Sunset in the Boulevard, rain. and Singing in the Rain. Like when we hear Singing in the Rain, it like that image is of that musical scene mm-hmm. where they're going, oh, I'm singing. I'm not a very good singer, so I'm not going to sing the whole thing. But it, that's something that a lot of people think of. But when you think of Sunset Boulevard, there's no real point of reference. I suppose a lot of people sort of think that singing in the rain sort of epitomizes that sort of happiness. Uh, I, I think I'm ready for, for my close-up is pretty pretty well remembered. I think so too. It's one of the most famous, amazing lines. Um, yeah. It is played endless throughout every film class, through every greatest hits moment in cinema mm. and she, her comeback uh, Gloria Swanson and to see how dark that film and the script actually is because the film they pl- show of Norma Desmond was actually Gloria Swanson's last film in the pre-Talkies era before she stopped making films right, wow. and yes. she w- was directed by Eric von Stromheim who met, played the butler in the film there's a lot of amazing elements to the film. They, elements, yeah. they bring up Buster Keaton for the card game all these great old actors it's a very eerie film noir-esque yeah, movie I, I love it um but yeah, its influence in depicting the darkness behind the Hollywood myth can be seen in Mulholland Drive, and also mm-hmm. um, David Lynch's Inland Empire. Um, yeah, I prefer films about filmmaking like that, that um, because I find when it's all just about celebrating everything that's great about movie, as, as I was saying before, it tends to tip into self-indulgence. A movie that I really could not stand on this note was The Artist, which did a, a really poor impression in my mind of Singing in the Rain, yeah, what did you guys think of it? Oh, the artist. I enjoyed the artist. I feel I felt at the time though it didn't have the staying power many people thought it would have. I preferred Hugo. That also came out this year. Yeah. A much better ode Hugo, to filmmaking. Hugo. Yeah, that that was a movie that never seemed to get off the ground for me until it it abandoned its perfunctory kind of kids movie adventure plot and became just a full on ode to the silent filmmaking era. And it was it was great. It was. And the last film I have to bring up in this segment um, was the non best picture winner for this year, La La Land, which is very nostalgic, which everyone loved, which is very much about a modern drive kind to of a similar. Cinema. A similar story, like a flip side to the disaster artist, you know, people who believe in each other and push each other on, but with very different destinations (laughs) with these two films. Yeah, and La La Land, I, I did enjoy that movie, although it did feel, ironically enough, it did seem fairly similar to another Woody Allen film that came out last year as well. Like, the plot line was very similar, you know, like some of the plot beats were the same. For example, a guy brings a girl to a, a movie, they go on a date, um, and then uh, and then they end up finding different people and then splitting up eventually at the end. I, I, 
I thought it was, again, a story that had already been done, even though I did like the style that went into it. Yeah, you're referring to Cafe Society, the remake of Adventureland, I understand. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, yeah. Yeah, so that was films about filmmaking. I'm sure we will talk about many more in the lead up to the Oscars race in the coming months. Um, The last one we are talking about is In This Corner of the World, which screened at the Japanese Film Festival and is in limited release from tomorrow. It is directed and written by Sunio Katabushi. And it is a cartoon, it's a beautiful film about a young woman in Hiroshima in the early 1940s. Kevin, what did we think of In This Corner of the World? I feel like using the word cartoon may be sort of... Like, yeah, it might give people really the wrong okay. impression. Yeah, Excuse me, I, it's <laughs> it's an, okay. I should say animation. Excuse me. It's okay. Like, but that's the thing with uh, animated films. A, a lot of people sort of may... Well, some people, the general public, may get the impression that a cartoon or animation is supposed to be for a younger audience. But in this case, it definitely proves that... Mo- that animation can go towards an older audience It's fairly well. confronting in its latter it, half, so don't take the kids unless you're prepared to show them a harrowing depiction of the effects of war, I suppose. It is honestly one of the... The last movie that I... Animated movie that I cried at was probably Up about six right. years ago, and this one, at the end, I was just so shocked because I we barely ever see what Japanese life was like in World War II. We always see what the Americans were up to or the Nazis were up to and like... Indiana Jones or similar movies what you know Hitler was doing but we never really see what happened in Japan and I thought it was a very interesting take on that and um, especially towards the second half of the film where the first half is life in just general life in Japan in the 30s but then juxtaposing that life with wartime yeah. so like people living fairly you know straightforward ordinary lives and then seeing essentially you know a movie about domestic chores and being a housewife for exactly. the first hour a slice of life and it is beautiful yeah mm. uh, my favorite part of this film though and my favorite part of the animation was uh, we talked about loving vincent a few weeks ago and how they used paint to implicate ideas of emotion and life and the character in this film is a daydreamer as is repeatedly stated and she uses her artistry to create different ideas of what japan and her hometown look like not just in currently but in the past and those for me were some of the really emotive moments yeah. they're a little sparing but it, they were very powerful it goes in a kind of meta direction when it talks about it or it depicts visually how we can use art to bring back memories of what's been lost which is essentially what this film is it was it's a very well researched depiction of Hiroshima, the director spent six years going through um, writings and photos and talking to people who remembered Hiroshima in order to build this depiction, and it really pays off. The the city is completely believable and beautifully rendered. And yeah, and it gets really heartbreaking. One of the first heartbreaking moments was you spend an hour and a half following this main character who loves drawings and giving her drawings to her friends and family. And then halfway, like about 75% into the movie, then this officer comes in and t- like takes away her notebook. And then yeah. it, it seems like a very small act, but you just sort of feel yeah, like that loss of power and yeah, yeah, that loss of innocence and, and and now, like, you don't know what's going to happen next. Mm. It's a devastating moment, but it's still very understated how they play it. There aren't those many aha moments in the film or that have those dramatic flourishes with ascending crescendos of music. It is really just, we, by the time these events happen, you feel the impact by virtue of having to know these characters, but also um, by the lack thereof of the crushing moments or crushing you know, effects that you would typically expect in a film like this the sound design sound design is incredible is amazing yeah. like especially if you it, i recommend catching this in the cinema just to hear the sound design because um the differentiation between 
just the quiet, gentle rhythms of life and, you know, the sounds of sandals clipping on roads and water being wrung out of clothes, being contrasted with the roaring sound of the fire bombings. And and the way that the Hiroshima blast itself is depicted is really striking as well. In this yeah, film. like it's not going for a big Hollywood moment, yeah, but yeah. fairly Very un- understated, yeah, in keeping with the, the aesthetic aims of this film. Yeah, I was curious how little they showed of that particular segment of history mm. in the film compared to... I understand why they spent so much time on the lead-up to these events, and anyone who would go into this film would know what this film is leading yeah. to, but uh, their depictions were very sparing, which was a bit of a surprise for me. Mm, um, but it is there just to give the film a sense of portent and dread, I think, in the no, because we know that's coming. The movie has this count, almost a countdown on screen because it's, it's constantly giving us more and more specific dates as we get closer to August 1945. Um, my big problem with this film, as much as we, by the sounds of it, all loved the way that the effects of the war were depicted in the second half of the film is that I didn't really start to get into this until about an hour in when the romance story starts to develop more and then shortly after that um, the war starts to come closer to home. The first hour of the film, which depicts um, the domestic life, seemed um, it's going for a slice of life, getting to know the characters, getting to feel the rhythms of life kind of feeling, but it's way too choppily edited and way too fast-paced, so I felt like I couldn't really get into these moments or get to know these characters very well, and it weakened the power of the film. Fortunately, it recovers later on. I think it does too. In This Corner of the World is in cinemas and limited release from tomorrow. Uh, there are a few things happening in and around town. There's a special screening of The Florida Project happening at Dendy Newtown on Sunday night. It's an advanced screening. Uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson Festival at the Round of Grits has one last screening. Is that right, Chris? Yep, there will be blood this Sunday and Monday. My favourite of his. Uh, Star Wars Midnight Screenings are happening next Wednesday night, Thursday morning around the country. I've got my tickets. Make sure you get yours. I'm pretty excited. I got, my la- I got my lightsabers too. Oh, I've got my robe. I'm, pr- I'm pretty keen. It's, <laughs> I'm going to come long. as Tommy Wiseau and throw spoons. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's in the wrong movie. And the last thing is tomorrow night, Moonlight Cinema is opening with, I think it might be the Australian premiere of Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. It's definitely worth checking out. Um, so please do get your Star Wars tickets because, oh, The Last Jedi, I have the billboards right outside I'm the studio. Good word. And good word about it. We are. We are. So Kevin Suarez, thank you so much for joining us. You can hear Kevin on Fridays in the Daily. It's been absolutely great having you on. You're welcome, Glenn. And we will be back next week with a Boxing Day special talking about some of the films to end the year on. It's been a wonderful night. Enjoy movies.